Ladies and gentlemen, how do you are listening to the Synapse Films Podcast, a journey into the world of Synapse Films. So buckle up and enjoy the ride. Susie Banyan decided to perfect her ballet studies in the most famous school of dance in Europe. The killer is coming. The killer's gonna get you. I'm just crazy about this store. I've been expecting you. You thought underneath was a heavy metal band. <laughs> Don't drink my flavor. Welcome to the Synapse Films Podcast. I am Timo Sabin. Some folks in the horror community know me as Timo. I will be your host on this journey into all things Synapse Films. Greetings, and thank you for listening to another episode of the Synapse Films Podcast. Since this is the Halloween season, and of course everyone here at Synapse enjoys this time of year, I decided to perform a little trick and give you, the audience, quite the treat. So, while our pals Jerry, Don, and Ryan Rock and Rolson were all busy at Cinema Wasteland, I decided to get sneaky and record a conversation between myself and Red Shirt Pictures owner Michael Felsher. Michael and I discuss his history in the business, Red Shirt Pictures history, and also we discuss the upcoming release of Trick or Treat, the 1986 classic that is being released by Red Shirt Pictures in conjunction with us here at Synapse Films. But before we get to that, it's my pleasure to announce that January 19th is the street date for director Marcel Walls. 2016 remake of Herschel Gordon Lewis's notorious 1963 driving classic Blood Feast. We will be releasing Blood Feast on a 4K disc and also a separate Blu-ray 2K release as well. Go to synapsefilms.com right now and pre-order Blood Feast. Speaking of right now, let's get to my conversation with Red Shirt Pictures Michael Felcher. Like to welcome to the show the man who gave the world red shirt pictures, Mr. Michael Felsher. Hello, Michael. Hi, how are you, sir? I'm doing excellent. First of all, thank you for taking your time to chat today. I know you're super busy. Um, I'd like to start out by asking about your background. Uh, what was the genesis of your love of film and, and filmmaking? When did you get the itch? What was it? Yeah, I've asked this question of uh, other filmmakers and uh, other people that I've, you know, interviewed over the years. And uh, for me, I, you know, I loved movies even when I was a kid. But it, when it changed, I know it was definitely when I went and saw Raiders of the Lost Ark for the first time with my father. We were, it was in summer of 81. And I didn't want to see it because I saw the poster for it. This was at the old La Mirada Mall in La Mirada, California, which is no longer there. And um, they had... It was an interesting, it was a weird mall that didn't make any sense whatsoever. It was a single-story mall that had previously been an outdoor shopping center that had gotten partially enclosed. 
And so it was just a mall that it always had an inferiority complex when it came to all the other malls in the area. And of course, this is in 1980. So I was, I grew up, I was a mall kid, you know. Uh -huh. So, um, but we had a couple things going for us there. One, it had a fantastic arcade. Uh, which was, I think it was actually called Noah's Arcade, if you can believe it. Oh, nice. <laughs> uh, but then the the other big great thing about that uh, that mall was it had a movie theater, and originally it had four small screens, and then right around, actually it was right around 1980, uh, they added two 70-millimeter houses. And that's where I saw all the big stuff in the 80s. I saw... Raiders, E.T., uh, Last Starfighter, Star Trek III, I saw Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, you know, Return of the Jedi, all that stuff was there. And anyway, my, my dad took me to go see Raiders because it reminded him of the films he grew up with, uh, you know, serials and the adventure films from the 1930s and 40s. And even though my dad was really a child of the 50s. Um, but I looked at the poster and I was like, there's no spaceships, there's no lasers, there's no... <laughs> You know, because I was a Star Wars kid. I had all the mm -hmm. action figures and everything. And they said, well, these are for the people that did Star Wars. I'm like, and, and Close Encounters. You like Close Encounters? But yeah, this looks boring. This looks old and dusty. Well, after it was over, I was I was hooked. And, and it was the first movie. I mean, I was only eight years old at the time. So it wasn't like I suddenly started thinking about, you know, the auteur method and mise-en-scene or shit like that. But at the same <laughs> right. time, I do remember there was something of a shift with me where it was just like, oh, this... How did they do this? You know, who's who's what's a director of photography? What is an editor? What what is what are all these? I, I, that was the one I think really honestly where I wanted to learn how the sausage was made, and um, so it started there. And then once I got into horror films, I saw Creep Show and then Dawn of the Dead right after that. That was when I knew what genre was kind of my my first love, and I just began gobbling up stuff left and right. And that's really when. I would say my uh, my cinephile status started. Again, it sounds more than a little pretentious to say it started around the age of eight, you know, nine years old. Um, oh, but I don't. Th I don't think so. I mean, I think most of us are are we're still children at heart, as we say, especially if we're into entertainment or we're into the arts and things. And I, and I think we do start developing our tastes. We yeah, you know? we do. Without re I mean, it's only in retrospect that I can really look back and go, oh, you know, I that was really when it started at the time. You know, it wasn't like I could put into, you know, any kind of complex thoughts in my head about what I was experiencing. I just knew that there was something different about this and that my attitude towards it began to change. It wasn't just cheap thrills on a Saturday afternoon. It was like, no, 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 I want to. And my and my father was really great about introducing me to films that he grew up with that he loved. So if I wanted to watch something that was in the theaters, you know, when I was growing up, that's fine. But then he would show me the African queen and he would show me treasure of the Sierra Madre and them and the original thing, you know, stuff like that. So I, as a kid, I was lucky. I got introduced to a wide range of films at a young age and I developed, and you know, I, I like, I love black and white movies. I loved, you know, Humphrey Bogart films. I, you know, it, you know, I, I knew I, by the age of 11, I knew who John Houston was and had seen several of his movies, you know, and I, a lot of that was because of my dad, because he wanted, he wanted me to have, he knew he loved movies too. And he was also a very creative person and he saw an opportunity to make sure that I understood that there was more that existed in movies than what was out in the theaters when I was that age. 
It's like you got to, in order to appreciate what's out now, you have to appreciate what's come before. Exactly. Right. It's interesting because we were just talking for, for a couple minutes before we started and uh, we're, we're exactly the same age by like a month. Mm-hmm. And I have a very similar experience with Raiders where my mom took me on and it was, I think during the summer, it was an afternoon matinee and I didn't know what it was. I don't think yeah. it was being advertised yet. Very similar to what you said. I saw the poster. I'm like, oh, so it's an old guy looking through for old stuff or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, looks, it, looks, it, looks, it looks dusty and dirty and old. Yeah. And then it's like, oh, right, oh, right. Right. And, uh, you know, I went in and was blown away by what I saw. Yeah, but what was interesting and still, but what, yeah. was that I didn't realize who Harrison Ford was. You know, I'm watching this movie where this I know, star, I didn't make the connection yes. that, to, to Han Solo either because he was so different. Looked, right. Looked, looked at and acted so differently. I mean, I, I, on some level, I knew it was the same guy from Star Wars, but I, you know, part, I think I remember a part of me going, well, where does, where does Han Solo in it? Where's the guy who plays Han Solo in this? And then I think at some point, he looked clean shaven yes. in the teaching scenes. And I went, Oh, Oh, oh shit. Clark okay. Kent moment. Yeah. It's just like, God, right. am, I, am I really that dumb? Right. Uh, well, it, it actually helped me. What it did is I think what that did was start me making connections in movies, like mm-hmm. to try, try to start figuring out. Cause it was almost like you were, you were tricked almost in a way. And, it, it kind of bothered me. I'm like, I want to know who these people are now. Oh, they're in different yeah, I, movies. I think a lot know? of me, you know, cause you're just like, well, how did they do that? Mm-hmm, how mm-hmm. did they pull that off? And you know what? And I would see these credits as they're walking through the forest. And I would see these credits for people and go, well, who's Michael Kahn? And what does an editor do? And then my father was an editor as well. He was, he would do creative. Uh, he, you know, it was interesting. He had an interesting job. He worked for a, a corrugated uh, company, a company that manufactured corrugated, cardboard like boxes you know that they use for boxes he never liked to be called cardboard it was always it's corrugated you know wood or it's you know it's corrugated it's, just, it's not cardboard it was like okay all right whatever right but he worked as he was sort of the i don't want to say i don't know but would it be the best way to describe his position it was technically i guess in marketing and sales but it was sort of a multimedia p- position where he would take photos and do slide presentations for the sales department and for corporate uh, when they were advertising a new branch that was going to open or they were doing a celebration of a salesman, you know, the salesman of the year type thing, he would fly all over the country and take pictures and then put them together and time it all out to music. And I, I got to see him work on a lot of those and he would just let me sit there and watch him work. And that's where I learned pacing and editing and how to, Oh, there's music, this lyric in this song kind of relates to this photo and, you know, in the beats and the music and stuff like that. And so, I had that going on at the same time that I was seeing these movies. And I think it was sort of a hand in hand thing with that. And also both my parents, neither one of them ever, you know, tried to keep me away from horror movies or anything. My, my, my mother, she didn't share my interest in any of that stuff at all, but she never tried to keep me from it. She always tried, you know, she, she would always just go, I don't get this, but you know, but you're, you're not out there, you know, slaughtering kittens. So obviously right. everything's okay. Right. Right. You know, and I, and I, of course had my mom, my room in, in my junior high and high school years, I had posters on the ceiling. I had them all. I mean, it was all over the place. I, I'll never forget the one t- I put all the posters up on the ceiling over the course of like a night and my mother hadn't seen it yet. And I was in the kitchen and I heard her find out. She went, oh, but she came back out and said, well, you have them arranged really nicely. 
So it's just like she could at least appreciate the uh, the organizational skill that went into it, right. if not if not the content, you know. So I had that go, and then I find like-minded individuals in high school who, you know, in the drama department, that was sort of my refuge from. Because when you're a teenager, you you, know, you hate your parents, you hate everything else, but. You know, it, I had the 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 these you know like-minded creative souls in the drama department. We made short films, and uh, we even did a, a sketch comedy TV show. We did like four episodes of that uh, on our own time. I think our budget was like whatever tapes we could scrape together. I mean, it was just like there was no money, and we didn't know what the hell we were doing. But we were just experimenting. I think that those were my early experiences of filmmaking that had come from those years of seeing all these movies back when I was a kid. Yeah, I, I never, I, I went to private school and it was a small school, so I mm-hmm. rarely was ever around someone who had the same passion I did for this stuff. I, I am also a huge, huge fan of older, older films. Mm-hmm. And, but most of my education from that comes from devouring AMC when it was really AMC. And oh, then, sure. Yeah. And back then, when it actually was American movie classic. Yeah. My, my John, John Ford and John Houston stuff was when they would have like marathons and I would just record the right, whole marathon right. and educate myself on it. And then, um, and then that of course kind of flipped over to, to Turner classic movies. Uh, but it really like opened my eyes to these old films and how incredibly wonderful they are. And the writing, and, and those films is so much stronger than anything we have today because they had to do it in the writing. There mm-hmm. wasn't as much flash and stuff, and I always find that very fascinating. Just watch a movie like Maltese Falcon. Yeah. And, I mean, that well, that, and my dad, it was interesting. My dad was a technology nut. He loved, uh, you know, all the latest technology and everything. And, and we had a VCR in 85, but mm-hmm. in 80, he bought one of the first Laserdisc players. Oh, wow. And, this thing, it was a Pioneer top loader. This thing weighs more than my Chevy Equinox does now. <laughs> uh-huh. And it was one of those things where you put the laser disc in there and it's a top loader and you slam the cover down and you hit that play button and it sounded like the Hadron Super Collider turning on. <laughs> you know, it was just like, I'm not sure if we're going to watch Dumbo or the house is going to go up in a nuclear explosion. <laughs> right, um, right. But so he was always about the optimal sound and the, the visual presentations. He was really a techno geek in his own way. I mean, you should have seen some of the equipment he had because he was also a DJ on the side. He would go out and do weddings and uh, bar mitzvahs and graduations and things like that. And he had two full-size uh, vinyl record players. They were uh, the Technic, they were Technics SL1100As. And these things also weighed a ton. And he would schlep these things around. He had a huge record collection. I mean, it was just, again, it's one of those things you don't really appreciate until much, much later. And you realize I was very lucky to have parents that had very interesting senses of humor and also were creative and also very open to letting me explore those things on my own and not say, no, 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 no. You got to be a dentist or a lawyer. You got to make sure you do this. And I mean, they wanted me to do well in school and they certainly wanted me to behave and everything. But at the same time, they never, I, I cannot remember a single time where it's just like, we, don't you bring those horror tapes into your room anymore? They didn't, they never did that. My, my father was the first person who showed me a horror movie. It was Creepshow. He sat me down in the living room and said, I want you to watch this. I think you'll enjoy it. It's just a movie. It's not real. And I've never had nightmares because of horror movies, I think because of when he told me. Because it was like, oh, okay, I can accept that. And I had a great time and I was scared and freaked out and grossed out. But I never started going, I must murder people because of these movies. You know, it was just never, <laughs> right. that, that never, 
So I think a lot of it is certainly the the way you're raised and the and the things that they choose to expose you to and and the the priorities of making sure that if you're going to like this, you need to know where this comes from. Right, exactly. You know? Well, I think people overdo that and they use it as an excuse an excuse and a scapegoat because last night my wife and I watched the documentary The Summit and I don't mm-hmm. really have any kind of inkling to climb K2 right no, now like I, I, have none. <laughs> I have none i have not i i in fact most of these you know, most of these people who look and want to go climb everest i just look at them it's like first of all it's been done so you're not breaking any new ground second of all it's incredibly dangerous right. and it's it's way and and not to mention there's so much litter up there up on that track mostly from the bodies of the people who never sure. made it back mm-hmm. it's like i don't know what you're really proving but again it's not my place to tell people what to do but right. it's like at the end of that, yeah, there's just like that. I'm just like, knock yourselves out, guys, because I ain't going to do it. Right. Well, there's confusion between people who, let's say, might might have, uh, maybe they are a killer and they're drawn to a film where they're watching that happen, as opposed to people who just enjoy the fantasy or well, they just are right. entertained uh, there's, by it. There, I can't think of any case that's ever happened where a perfectly normal person went in to watch a horror movie and then suddenly was sitting there and went, I must kill everyone I've ever met. You know, it just doesn't, right. it doesn't work that way. Right. People who are going to do that sort of thing, find ways to do it and draw inspiration from any number. People have been drawn to murder people from paintings for Christ's sakes, you know? So it's, it's, it's all relative really. Right. Well, so obviously in high school you were uh, uh, experimenting with, with mm-hmm. filmmaking with friends and, and with uh, yeah. you know, people in school and stuff. Now, did you go to college for filmmaking? No, that was never really an option. Um, mostly a financial one. And also I didn't really want to do it. Um, I, I, I had kind of mixed feelings about film school because it was like all the examples of all the people that I really admire are people who went and just did it. You know, they, they learned by doing it and not to poo poo or, or to, uh, in any way denigrate the film school experience. It's obviously worked for a lot of people and it's, and this is truly just a personal preference thing. But for me, when I looked at like you know what George's attitude was, just like if you have an idea, go do it, just go do it, you know, and you'll learn. And I've learned honestly, I've learned more on the job doing stuff than I ever have in a classroom. There's there's a there's a unique glory in failing, in in falling flat on your face and learning the hard way, which is something that seems to be kind of in short supply these days. Um, I, I do. I mean, there are times where I look back and go, God, I wish I had known this. I wish I had known that. And some of those early video shorts I did, I'm as proud of those as anything I've ever done. But at the same time, I look at them and go, wow, I didn't know shit. And if I had, but then I also see, well, I did learn because the next one I did figure out how to turn on the lights. I did know, I figured out how to follow, you know, I learned. So it's like, okay. Right, right. Well, you're Sometimes, actually seeing yourself improve, which is probably a positive thing for you when you go it's back. It's very positive. Like when I look back at some of my early work with Redshirt, I just go, "Wolf, man, I wouldn't do that today." But I didn't, and I came at all those decisions through an honor, a, a genuine creative process. It was like, "I let's throw something at the wall and see what sticks." You know, I don't know if this is going to work or not. I want to see if it does. And sometimes what happens is you do something like that. Okay, that didn't work, but that gave me an idea to try this instead, and that did. And I would never have figured that out had I not kind of fallen down. And so, you know, every mistake I make in, in, in something usually will lead to something much better. I mean, it was funny. I was called out on, 
I did a documentary on Texas Chainsaw Massacre called Flesh Wounds, uh, Seven Stories of the Saw. And it was seven individual short films. And then one of them was an interview with Danny Pearl, the director of photography. And I did it and I edited it in such a way where I would cut between, I would have him in black and white and then widescreen. And then I would have him in like full frame. And it was just, I was mixing with the aspect ratios and doing all sorts of interesting sound effects. And a, a reviewer kind of called me out and said, this is just a bunch of gimmicky stuff you don't need. And I read that and I was like, you never like to get criticism, but this was a review that was written many years later after the fact. And I'm reading it and I'm looking at it and going, you know, I think I kind of agree with him. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. now, I w- and now I would never do that. But mm-hmm. back then I, was exp- I wasn't sure. Mm-hmm. I wanted to see, well, maybe this will work. Maybe this will work. And um, that's just, that's a, a, a person who's just kind of getting their feet wet. Just, you know, you, you need to be able to have the freedom to fall down a little bit and screw up. And then just, for me, learning from my mistakes has always been the greatest teacher in a way. You know, you, you mentioned Raiders of the Lost Ark, and, and just real real quick, and I almost hate this question because us people who, who, I guess, doing in this world like we are, it's kind of a loaded question, but would you consider Raiders your favorite film? It's certainly one of the landmark films in my life, absolutely. Um, and I and I, I know exactly what you mean because I'm loath to ask that question myself because it's like there are so many films that hit you at so many different parts in your life that appeal to different parts of your personality. And so there's like a running list. There's like a there's a there's a there's a bowl full of gold coins, and each of those gold coins is my favorite movie at the moment that I'm picking it out of the bowl. Gotcha. Um, so Raiders is in there, Creepshow's in there, Dawn of the Dead's in there, uh, a wonderfully unappreciated film from 1996 called Mother Night is in there. There's a whole bunch of them. Uh, Finding Nemo is in there. You know, there's, there's, there's any number of the African Queens in there. I mean, there's all sorts of films that depending on when you ask, I'm going to probably, but there are certain ones that will certainly come to mind immediately. Raiders, Dawn, Creepshow, those are the ones. Because they, again, they hit me at a certain age and fundamentally changed my interest in something. Right. I always say Halloween, and, and it mm-hmm. is. And a lot of people don't like it or do like it or it hasn't held up people. But I always say, I'm not saying it's the best film ever made. As a matter of fact, I think Jaws is a better movie. It's mm-hmm. my favorite. I have a theory with filmmakers is that, for me, if you ask me, you know, what's your favorite George Romero movie? What's your favorite Sam Raimi movie? I say, well, are you talking my favorite movie? or what I think their best movie right, is. Right, right. Like, for example, Sam Raimi, my favorite movie is Evil Dead 2, which I think is still one of the most visually inventive films I've ever seen in my life, and that was extremely influential on me. I think his best movie is A Simple Plan. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But I think my favorite movie of his is, like, Tim Burton. What's his... Tim Burton's an exception where I think my favorite and his best movie is is both Ed Wood. I do, too. Absolutely. By, by leaps I, and bounds. I, yeah. yeah, and I love his other films, mm-hmm. but you know, is what's what's Steven Spielberg's best movie? Probably Schindler's List, if you have to be really objective about it. But my favorite will always be Raiders. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and so and and with George, what's George's best movie? Probably Martin. But Dawn of the Dead is my favorite, and Creepshow is probably it, those are interchangeable for me. So it's weird. It's like I, I, whenever people put together top ten lists and stuff like that, I always find it funny because it's like this is so subjective. It is. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. and there's nothing. There's no such thing as a definitive top ten list of anything. You know, it's it's what because our our own personal perceptions color everything and our own his our own histories with the. Because I know that I can't be a hundred percent objective about 
a lot of the stuff I saw when I was younger because it literally formed my my viewpoints and my love for certain things. Yes. So yeah. And well, and that's you know. why I always say I'm not saying it's the best. And me for me personally, it's like I would say Halloween's a favorite. But the thing is it's funny because I know the question is so eye rollingly <laughs> it's it's asked by everyone from the dawn right. of time. So what's your influence? You know? I right. mean, you know, so I've been playing music my whole life. I can't tell you how many times I get asked stupid questions like that too. But it, I always find though that the answer is always multi-layered. You get a lot of titles back because usually people can't, just like yourself, you know, you're saying I have so many of them. I think it also gives a little roadmap into how eclectic your tastes are. You've mentioned Finding Nemo. You mentioned yeah. African Queen, you know, and to me that's that's interesting because you just love a good story and and, and put together. And I, I, I actually appreciate that. It is, at the end of the day, and I've certainly, even as a kid, and I will give myself credit as a kid that, you know, when you're a kid, you want the big flashy movies with the special effects and the ships blowing up and stuff like that. And that's fine. But even as a kid, I I only found, I found that the ones I was the most attracted to were the ones that, where the characters moved me. And the, the situation, there was something intriguing about all that other stuff had to be icing on the cake. It had, it had to, and I, I realized that so many of like the Star Wars imitators and certainly the Raiders imitators that came out after that focused only on the whiz bang stuff. And it was like, well, that's great. And I've enjoyed some of this, but what else you got? You know, I mean, you, you got to give me something else to, to work with here or else I'm just not going to be as engaged by it. Right. Right. I think my parents knew I was really serious about film when I forced them. I begged, I pleaded when I was seven years old for them to take me to go see the elephant man. Okay. And, and they went to they went they took me to go see the elephant man and my brother to this day jokes my dad was not a drinker at all he did not he barely ever drank anything and he said dad came home and poured himself a tall glass of bourbon after that movie and was completely <laughs> shook by it because it was so emotionally traumatizing yeah you know, no well him. I mean that's you know uh, and I you know I I was exposing myself as much as I could to I mean I certainly didn't get into the more independent more avant-garde stuff until I was in my teens mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but even as a kid I would I would I would go see films that I, I was I thought you know I, like the one I always think about is like when Dune was getting promoted, um, you know they were really trying to sell that as the new Star Wars. You know they were they were going to be action figure sets and everything. So I knew it was coming out. So I went and said, "Well, I'm going to." And I was a big not as much as I am used to be, but I, I every now and then. But I back then I was a rabid book reader. I thought, well, I know this movie's coming out. And it's based on this book. I'm going to go get the book. I'm going to read the book so that I you know, before I go see the movie and I go get the, the Dune book and it was actually the movie novelization cover and everything. And I start reading it and I'm like, like not, not even half a page into it. And I've gone to the glossary six times and I'm like, okay, you know what? I'm not going to do this. Um, I'm going to go see the movie, use that as a primer for the book mm-hmm. and then come back to the book. And I go to see the Dune and I walk in and they hand me a fucking glossary as I walk into the theater. And it's like, you've got to be kidding me. And so I go into the theater and I'm trying to read this shit. And then Virginia Madsen comes up and starts explaining stuff to me that I don't understand. I'm going back and forth with the glossary. I'm like, you got, oh, I'm fucked. I ain't so barely fucked. I got halfway. I, I don't think I even got halfway through. I think I got to the point where 
uh, Kyle McLaughlin and Patrick Stewart suddenly turn into jello molds and start fighting each other. <laughs> and I just, I walked out and I went and watched the back half of Starman in another theater. Because uh, it was just like, no, nah, I'm done. I can't uh, do this shit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, so, I, 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 I don't, don't, don't get me wrong. It, the Elephant Man wasn't because when I was seven, I was in avant garde. The Elephant Man was because I saw the ads with a guy walking around with a Friday the 13th part two. Yeah, mask exactly. On. Sackhead. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it looked really interesting. Now, when I did go, see it i loved it more than i thought i was going to even though it wasn't what i expected but i Mm -hmm. think that for me was the seed that i too when i got older in high school blossomed i i finally watched david lynch's movies like eraserhead and things like high school into college and stuff and so i i did that but i think it planted a seed for me oh yeah the the movies do that you know Mm -hmm. certain and and, and certainly films where you had no preconceptions going in or your 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 ideas going in were completely subverted by the final product. Right. Right. You know, I mean, there was one, and this is not, it was years later it was in 93. I was really looking for it. And I really enjoyed the trailers for this movie falling down with Michael Douglas. And cause it looked like a fun movie where the guy's getting back at all the crap in life that pisses us all off. And that's certainly in the film, but as the movie's going on and for say, Oh, this is a much darker much more layered examination of, you know, what society does to people and, and, and our perceptions of who this guy, you know, is like, we're on his side, we're on his side. Oh, I'm less on his side. Oh, this guy's nuts. <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah. and then so it's like, wow. And I, so I really love the fact that the trailer got me in the theater, but what we got, what I got was a much more rich and textured experience Right, and I love it when that happens. So that doesn't happen very often anymore. No, today it's usually the opposite. I usually have low expectations, and they and, are yeah. usually met. <laughs> yeah, yeah, usually, yeah. And it's it's sad when you go in there. Well, I didn't expect much, and I didn't get much. <laughs> right, right. So I guess that's a victory. I don't know. I, <laughs> right. yeah. Or at least I wasn't too disappointed. <laughs> yeah, it's just, at least I didn't want to end my life at least five times while watching the movie. <laughs> right. I guess that's a, you know. right. Um, well, when did you get your first? what you would consider professional gig in the business? Well, that's sort of a tricky question. I mean, when I got my job at Anchor Bay Entertainment was really when I entered the business um, because I was doing a website for them as a fan. This is back. It's hard for people to even conceive of this now, but back in the late nineties, not every company had a website. Uh, The webs, the, the internet was sort of like the wild, wild west. A lot of companies didn't know what to do about the internet. They didn't know how to utilize it. They didn't know how to monetize it. And so I did a fan site for Anchor Bay Entertainment because I just loved all these deluxe VHS releases they were bringing out of all these movies that I loved. And one thing led to another, and thanks to a a gentleman named Jay Douglas, who was the VP of Acquisitions for Anchor Bay Entertainment at the time and has tragically passed away a few years ago, he and I struck up a couple of phone conversations and we became friends. And one thing led to another. And over the course of like a year, he convinced the company to hire me as a full-time webmaster. And brought, I was living in North Carolina at the time doing absolutely nothing with my life. And they offered me a job in Troy, Michigan. This was in July of 2000. I moved up here where I still am. And I was with Anchor Bay for f- four and a half years. And that was really when I kind of got into the business and started really, you know, working on all these incredible DVD releases, Near Dark, Evil Dead, and Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead. I mean, just tons of them. 
But the first, and I, I saw what David Gregory was doing with Blue Underground because Bill Lustig was doing all the technical stuff and a lot of acquisitions for the company. And he and David were doing all the extras and all the commentaries. And David had done one for Maniac called The Joe Spinell Story which was a fantastic documentary about the life of Joe Spinell. It was a very colorful character, great character actor. Life kind of went in a very tragic way towards the end there. And it was a really great, great documentary. And I was just like, man, I want to do that. Because this, this is like combining my love of everything I've grown up with plus my love of filmmaking. It's like both best of both worlds. So I started really developing an interest in doing that, but there wasn't a clear avenue for me to do it because they already had David, and they didn't need me out there doing that. Well, Bill left the company, and then Perry Martin, who had worked with Bill as well, he formed his own thing. He started working for Anchor Bay and taking care of it. But then I, I got an opportunity to we acquired Night of the Demons. And they really weren't going to add a whole lot to it. And Linnea Quigley, who, of course, stars in that movie, was going to be at a convention in Cleveland that I was going to be going to. And I thought, well, what if I filmed her and I had learned Adobe Premiere at that point on my own. And I edited it and presented it to Anchor Bay and showed them what I can do. And through a comedy of errors, which almost the whole thing almost fell apart like three times. And thanks to a couple of good friends, Mike Watt and the best who bailed me out at the last second, loaned me their camera and their time and their efforts. I, and Linnea, we, I got the interview filmed. I brought it back. I never told anyone I was doing this at Anchor Bay. And I edited the whole thing and put it together and presented it to them. And they put it on the disc. But the problem was they didn't need me for that position. They already had plenty of talented people in L.A. doing it. And then one thing led to another. My position just got kind of phased out because the company got bought out by a couple different. At that point, it was a, a telecommunications company, and they were starting to rearrange the company. And my place in the company just kind of disappeared. And then when I was let go, I was like, well, why don't I form a you know, redshirt pictures and start and try to do the extra thing on my own. And that's how it began. How did you meet uh, Don and Jerry? Well, Jerry, I met through Don after he had formed Synapse Films. But Don, I had, I've been a fan of Elite Entertainment. I actually had sent in an application. I wanted to work for Elite Entertainment. I actually uh, sent in a fan letter saying, hey, if you ever need anybody to, you know, this was years back after they did their Night of the Living Dead laser disc in 93. And, I ended up through one way or another. I'm not, I, again, I'm trying to remember the sequence of events, but I ended up befriending Don after he formed Synapse Films, and I did his website for a while because I was doing a lot of web work back in the in the mid to late '90s, and that's how I met Don. And then I got the job with Anchor Bay, and I had to stop doing his website. But then I moved to Michigan, and then Don moved to Michigan. So it was just like, you know we ended up becoming friends that way. And uh, that's how I met Jerry through that. Cause Jerry was obviously his partner by that point. So um, it's been so long. I can't remember what the first meeting was like or anything. I can't even remember with Don what it was. Uh, apparently I met Don or I at least was around Don at a signing that George Romero did at the Monroeville mall back in like 96. Uh-huh. I met Jay Douglas was there like three or four people that I would later work with were there that I never met. <laughs> they were all there at that one. Uh-huh. Minute. It was just, yeah, there's video of me actually talking about George Romero that ended up on the Dawn of the Dead Laserdisc and later was resampled in the Dawn of the Dead documentary for Anchor Bay because Perry knew I was in it, so I got a foot fellowship in there somewhere. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, so that's that's how I met Don and Jerry. And I honestly, 
maybe Don or Jerry remember the first meeting, but I, I can't. I, for, at this point, I've just always known them. At right, this point. right. I know they, they are very fond of you and, and love collaborating with you. you know, well, it's feelings mutual. They're great. They're great guys. I mean, it's just like, you know, Don is the most quality conscious guy in the business. No one, no one cares more about how these things look and sound than he does. And he puts everything he can into it. And Jerry is one of the few people on the business side of anything that I truly trust. When Jerry says he's going to do something, he'll do it. When John, when Jerry says, this is what you're going to get. I will pay you on this. And this is how the payment schedule is going to be. Or I promise I'm going to do this for you. He does it. And that's exceedingly rare these days. Right. So, you don't have to ask him twice. That's, no, you yeah, don't. And yeah. you never have to, if there's ever an issue or a, a problem, he's always like, well, we'll figure it out. We'll work it out. Not that there ever are, but it's just sure. like, yeah, he's one of the few people that I can actually truly trust in this business. And that is saying, it doesn't sound like I'm saying a lot by saying that, but I really am. <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, well, what, what would you can, what was the first under the banner of red shirt pictures? What, what was the first thing that, that you got on like a release? So for well, like, strictly yeah. speaking, the, the, the Linnea Quigley piece, I did use red shirt pictures okay. for that. Okay. Because I, I didn't want to say, I, even then, even though I was still working for Anchor Bay, I thought, well, I probably should brand myself somehow. And I came up with red shirt pictures. I'm a big Star Trek fan. And so I thought, well, I'll name my company after those poor bastards that die in every episode. Uh, and, and I just thought, well, that's kind of a perverse way to go about it. But okay. So red shirt, and, that's just, and I did, I, I remember it was just a very simple red shirt pictures. Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah. And that was it. But the first red shirt pictures release that I did after Anchor Bay was the documentary After Effects, Memories of Pittsburgh Filmmaking for Effects, which I helped get placed at Synapse Films. Uh, which was a, a monumentally important project for me and still one of my favorite things I've ever done. What was the most difficult feature that you felt to, to complete? What was the most like arduous you know, <laughs> title where you had this job and you thought, hey, this is going to be good, and it just became like a nightmare for you? I will say I've been lucky and I haven't had too many nightmare projects. Mm -hmm. I've had ones that were certainly challenging and certainly ones that flowed easily along the path and others. Um, but two come to mind. One was the Night of the Living Dead documentary, One for the Fire, uh, which accompanied the, was it the 40th anniversary of Night of the Living Dead in 2000? I think it was the 40th anniversary. Um, I came in as an editor on that. And that became just a nightmare because at the time, the two people who were producing and directing that stopped talking to each other. <laughs> And there was a, it. there was some, and then I also had a lot of time management issues at the time and uh -huh. I ran late on stuff and the documentary was very rushed and it just, it was not what any of us wanted really at the end of the day. And so it was just, that was one. And I think neither living dead has a permanent cloud over it. There's just something up that that movie is cursed. Mm -hmm. It really, mm -hmm. it really truly is. And I remember talking about this with George. So what is it about this movie? Is it Mike? It's cursed. I don't know. I just, <laughs> we, we all got, everybody who touches that movie gets screwed in one way or another. It's just like, mm -hmm. even so as for as landmark a movie as it is, and as influential as it was. And you know, it, it, it really, it just, <laughs> It just seems to be this dark rain cloud that follows it wherever it goes. Right. I don't know and it, it's public is. domain, making sure that we all have an equal opportunity to become yeah, which harmed is by it. which is absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, uh, the fact, and I've been asked a few times to do stuff for Night of the Living Dead releases. My first question: Did you 
clear this with image 10 with Russ and Jack and uh -huh. George. It's like, no, we don't have to. It's like, well then bye. Right. Right. It's like, I'm not going to help perpetuate that nonsense. Right. Anyway. So that, that one was, that one sucked, but the worst, honestly, the worst one in terms of just the frustration level was Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the next generation, which was the, the Texas Chainsaw four, basically. Um, not with the people that I got to interview, like Kim Hankel, the writer director and the cast and the makeup guys. and everything. Everybody I interviewed and worked with directly on that was wonderful. Uh, but the problem was the studio that owned it, that not shout factory, the, the distributor, but the studio that owned it still to this day, have this paranoid delusion that Matthew McConaughey and Renee Zellweger are going to like set fire to the studio <laughs> if their names are associated with this. <laughs> uh -huh. So I wasn't even allowed to use clips of them from the movie. In fact, there was one moment I, one of the actors I interviewed was talking specifically about a scene in a car at night that he did where Renee Zellweger happened to be in the backseat of the car, uh -huh. but I needed to use this clip because it was directly going to his experience of making it. So I had to darken it, her out of the backseat. I mean, it was, it was ridiculous. And it, and it, meant that several extras we wanted to include, we could not include. We couldn't include them on the cut. I mean, it was, it was an absolute nightmare, and it just held up everything, and it, it handcuffed me from what I was able to do. And the sad thing was, neither Renee Zellweger or Matthew McConaughey have ever had anything bad to say about that movie. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. Like, is Because it seems like they're wasting a golden opportunity to... Well, it's not them. Honestly, I don't think it's them. It's people around them. Uh -huh. who have a vested interest in their careers who don't want this chainsaw. Because what happened was the whole reason this started was when Chainsaw Next Year, they did both, both of them did this movie before they were going to have their big breaks. As it turns out, because in 96, when the chainsaw was going to come out, Renee Zellweger was about to come out with Jerry Maguire and Matthew McConaughey was about to come out with The Time to Kill. And there were a lot of people at the studios and the distributors and managers and publicists who were going to make their bones on these guys who didn't want this little chainsaw movie coming out and somehow fucking that up. And so they just went on a tear and said, do not use them to promote this movie. Don't mention it. They, they tried to bury it six ways from Sunday. And I was shocked to see that that attitude still prevailed all these years later. And my whole attitude is like, they've both won Oscars. They're both multi-million. Right. What? And again, I, if you if I bumped into Matthew McConaughey and Ailes were on the street and asked them about it, they would have been happy to talk about it because they got nothing to be embarrassed. They, and I, I wanted to break this to the publicists and the managers around both those people. They've both made worse movies <laughs> than Texas Chain. Did you see a couple of those Bridget Jones sequels? Did you see The Dark Tower? I mean, I, come on. You know, they're both very entertaining in that film. They both do a really good job. And look, it, it's just like. They don't. They don't care. Why do you still care? So that that was uh, uh, that one was really frustrating. It was really, really that sounds annoying. Like someone sit like a studio. That would be to someone sitting over your shoulder while you're yeah. doing it. Remind. No, yeah, no, 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 no. Like, there's Renee. There's Renee. Yeah, there's oh, there's Renee walking through the background. That's actually her stunt double. I don't care. <laughs> like you know, it was almost that bad. It was almost that bad. Oh, man. So that one. That yeah. one has a that left a sour taste in my mouth. But again, Kim Hankel was great. And all the people who made the, I will tell one funny story. Uh, I was trying to get a commentary together with Kim Hankel for the film in Austin. And I, the place I normally used in Austin wasn't available. And I was looking everywhere to find a place to record this commentary. I went through like five other places. None of them were available. Finally found a place that was able to do it. 
And I was like, great, it's fantastic. And uh, at the very end of the conversation, the, the owner of the studio says, oh, by the way, I didn't ask, what movie is this for? And I said, oh, it's for Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Next Generation. And there's a long pause, and I'm thinking, oh, he's going to come back and say, I don't want to have anything to do with that. Or He goes, are you kidding me? I did the sound mix for that movie. <laughs> is, I haven't seen Kim in years. This is going to be awesome. So he ended up coming. It was like... Kim was just like, you didn't know? I was like, no, I had no idea when I called this guy. <laughs> so it was just, it was, it ended up being perfect. So it was just like, God damn it, how funny is that? <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Well, that kind of leads me to another question, another curious question. What do you, what, what do you consider the hardest person to track down oh, for a next one? It would be. Oh, God, there have been so many. Because some of these people, it's interesting, the, 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 there are people who have dropped out of the business after making one or two films or something, and then they, they're, they're off the grid and it's almost impossible to find people. Uh, and then there's other people who are fully ensconced in the business and still working that you still can't get a hold of for one reason or another. Uh, there's really no rhyme or reason as to why someone is hard to find. Uh, Cause you know, sometimes someone will drop out of the business, but they're still active on social media and you call them up and they're like, Oh sure. Hey, great. Um, I'm trying to think of ones that stick out in my mind as being particularly difficult. I really, I, I'm How about surprisingly to... difficult. Like someone you didn't think was going to be an issue. And all of a sudden you're like, oh. I'm having a hard time finding this person. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Scott Grimes with the critters movies was really, yeah. See, there you go. Challenge. Really? <laughs> yeah. Again, huh. well, it wasn't so much getting a hold of him, but it was getting him to commit to do. He was all, I'll do it. I'll do the interview. Do it. He canceled and, and rescheduled on me, I think, a half a dozen times, and then ultimately just dropped out of contact, and we never got the interview with him. Uh, and that was really frustrating. It was weird. I was just like, what the hell? You know, say yes or no. You know, dude, come on. Um. Oh, one person. I well, I will say this. I was doing the movie Brain Scan. And it was an early effort written by Andrew Kevin Walker, who went on to write Seven for um, David Fincher and uh, wrote his new film, too, the one coming out uh, called The Killer. And I assumed that he would never do this because it's like, I doubt he's going to want to talk about Brain Scan. I have a feeling this is one of those ones where it's like he probably doesn't want to mention each other. So I sent in a request to his, his manager going, yeah, uh, here, it was kind of like expecting a no or no response. Three hours later, it's like, oh, he's totally excited about it. When do you want him? And I was like, uh, bah, uh, <laughs> okay. Uh -huh. You know, it's just like, you know, that was, that was a shock. Uh -huh. Um, so there's, yeah, there's just, there's always, <clears throat> there's always a few, but I'm trying, unfortunately, it's like all these names are colliding in my head. So it sounds like you're kind of surprised when people are really excited to talk about something and surprised almost when they're not at times. It, it, you can never predict it. You can never really predict what someone is going to respond to or like you assume, well, this person is never going to want to talk. Like the, the author of the book uh, Slugs that the movie was based on, everything that I ever read was that he was horribly embarrassed by the movie and that he thought it was a terrible adaptation of his book, and it was just something he wanted to never discuss. And when I was working on the Blu-ray, I put in a request to him, thinking again, I'm never going to want to hear from this guy. We ended up doing a commentary where we had a blast. you know. And it was just like, I wasn't expecting this. Uh, I wasn't expecting to get the actual director of Faces of Death to do a commentary with me. back when I did. And, and the real one, not the one that often took credit for it, but the one who's 
put a fake name on his movie because he had a legitimate uh, business doing nature documentaries and didn't want anyone to know. To this day, he still doesn't want anyone to know his real name. <laughs> but we did a commentary where he revealed all these things about how they made that movie. And I suddenly was like, I suddenly appreciate the artistry that went into this. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> Whereas I did not before. It's like, wow. Uh-huh. So yeah, those are the ones that kind of tend to stand out as opposed to like, but you know, the, the, for me, the great white whale is, uh, is probably always going to be, Stephen King, who's never agreed to do an interview for me ever, and he, but he rarely does them to begin with. And then Sam Raimi, I've never even met Sam Raimi, and I've done five or six of his films and three full-length documentaries, I think, on his work. And I've never, I've never met Sam. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, so it's 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 weird. It's just uh, well, we're gonna um, we're gonna talk a little bit here because, of course, this is a synapse podcast and in collaboration with you there is a release mm-hmm. coming out trick or treat yeah uh, we're going to talk about that here in a minute um and this is this question sort of spills into us talking about trick or treat everyone is aware that red shirt pictures is what they see on a lot of special features when they're buying their physical media and stuff they go ah red shirt pictures i'm going to get a good interview going here and stuff <laughs> what is it that people might not know that the red shirt pictures either also does like uh, the release that you're working on uh, with, with trigger treat or something mm. that you would like the company to be doing as red shirt oh. pictures that it's not. Oh, that's a good, I've never been asked that question before. Um, honestly, one of the things that I really enjoy doing and I've now done about five or six of them is film reconstructions, mm. uh, which is basically a situation that has evolved because you know, everyone's starting to do for a long time has been doing HD transfers of films and now they're doing 2K, 4K, and that's becoming the norm. The problem has become with a lot of these films that were done, certainly a lot of the direct-to-video efforts that were done back in the starting in the early 90s and moving forward, a lot of them were shot on film, but to save costs and save time, they were not edited on film. The, the film was transferred, all the dailies and everything were transferred to three-quarter inch or one-inch video. They cut it on video and then released it because back then standard def was it. There was no reason to think they would need anything more than that. And I have come into the, the job of actually doing reconstructions. Like the first one I did was Trilogy of Terror 2 which was again shot on film. And what they ended up having to do was they transferred every single, they had every single frame of negative that was shot on that transferred all of it, send it all to me. And then like uh, the world's most interesting jigsaw puzzle had to go in (laughs) and find every single shot, every single shot Mm -hmm. and re remake the film using the old master and essentially replace every single shot with the new transfer. And I've done that on uh, bad biology the Frank Hanalotta movie. I did that for seven. I did that on David Gregory's film, Plague Town. I did that on what else? Oh, Beyond Dreams Door for Vinegar Syndrome. Uh, there's been a, quite a few of them I've done. And I, I actually really, it, it can be a very excruciating process at times. And there are, there are times where you have to get up and just walk out of the room and just go get some sunlight. Mm-hmm. But it is very rewarding. There's something very, I don't know, kind of intellectually satisfying about doing that. And so I, I, whenever I have the opportunity to do a reconstruction, I always take it. I did one for uh, Skid Deep, the Gabriel Bartalos movie. 
so it, that's something that I will, uh, whenever there's an opportunity to do that, I will always take it. Now, for instance, Trilogy of Terror 2, that was released on Blu-ray by Kino, correct? Am yes, I it right? was. Now, did, yeah. is that what's on the, the Blu-ray, is what you reconstructed? Yeah, yeah. And oh, unfortunately okay. with that, it was a little frustrating because they, the, unfortunately, the people who own that movie lost a couple reels. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So there was some stuff we had to up res from an old master, but most of it was all brand new negative. And it was frustrating at times trying to, because in the, uh, the, the Zuni doll sequence, there's a lot of really quick, fast cuts that were sped up and reversed and stuff. And it's like, Oh God, <laughs> I gotta try and figure, I gotta figure out which shot of the doll flying across the room was the one they used. And you know, that, that, that stuff can drive you batshit. But uh -huh. it's like, when it's all done, it's very, it's very, uh, um, very satisfying. Now, uh, so let's get into trick or treat. Yeah. A little bit, because to me, I think maybe this might, even kind of be a partial answer to the what has red shirt pictures maybe not known for but maybe something that you would like to get into what made you want to undertake this as red shirt pictures um this particular title and just in general to want to be you know to release a film the way that you are even if you're working with synapse uh, don and jerry both tell me this is your baby you know that yeah. you've been working on yeah, well, Trick or Treat's been the, a title for, even when I was at Anchor Bay, I've been wanting to re-release that. I was a big fan of that when I was growing up, and it's a film that has sort of gone through a lot of hands over the years and has never really just found the right time or the right place to get back out there. And through a lot of detective work, I did manage to finally figure out what the right situation was on it, contacted them directly, and we managed to make this work. And I realized, well, I kind of want to do this one myself. And I had previously released an extended version of my After Effects documentary on my own label, uh, Red Shirt Home Videos, the first, technically the first release. And it had gone okay, but, you know, it was a lot of legwork and stuff I didn't have time to do. And it's like, I'd rather have someone who could handle the technical side of this whom I trust. And with Trick or Treat, this is a different situation where it's an actual, it wasn't a documentary I shot or put together on my own that I can finish off and complete on my own i need someone who's really good at this and i was talking about it with don at cinema wasteland back in april say well i'd like to do this and this and this. well why don't we do it with you which was a dream for me because it's like i was gonna i wanted to ask him to do it because again no one's better at this than don so i kind of get the best of both worlds with this i get to kind of create my own brand and my own line but the people who are working on it are the people who are the best in the business at it you know, and because I wouldn't want anyone else but Don to handle this because he's going to, again, he's going to go in there and just, you know, with a fine tooth comb and a and magnifying glass, go through this and make sure it's perfect. So that was really kind of like, well, I can create red shirt video here at Synapse Films. They'll be the exclusive distributor of this. And I guess it's really, I get, for me, it's a win, 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 win. You know, mm -hmm. I, 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 I get all the I get all the the great stuff out of this, you know. <laughs> right, yeah. What what? Why was the film? I mean, what I, I know there had to have been some sort of licensing challenges or something because the film is a notorious, not in print film. It's been basically on bootleg shelves. It's about it forever. I mean, even the the what looked like official releases of the DVD that I would see back at Best Buy way back in the day and stuff didn't really even look totally legit. <laughs> Time. Well, it what was. was Sadly enough, that? that one was legit. That was, was actually a fully legit release, which just goes to show you that they were, you know, because that that cover is one of the worst covers of all time right. because it has a 
the house it looks like a haunted house movie and then they slapped two photos of Ozzy Osbourne and Gene Simmons looking like they were shot at a press event. <laughs> right. They have not, they don't look like that in the movie at all. Mm-hmm. And of course it's Gene Simmons and Ozzy Osbourne and Mark Price in trick or treat. Right. <laughs> and I feel bad for anyone who's not familiar with the movie goes in there and each of those guys is in the movie for about 60 seconds. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, okay, that's a little misleading. Um, it was just a matter of, cause this, the catalog that that movie is a part of has gone through banks, European companies, back to banks. The rights have just gotten scattered all over the place. And this one just kind of fell through the cracks because it didn't have, it wasn't like um, a Schwarzenegger film or something where there was obviously going to be a Walmart demand for it or something like that. And there was an interest in keeping it in print. It just kind of fell through the cracks. And the rights had been with a company here in the States for a while. And then they had transferred back to a company overseas. And I just went, happened to contact them at the right moment when this had happened. And I said, well, what if I do it? Uh-huh. And so, well, we don't really care. Uh-huh. And so it was like, okay. Uh-huh. And so we made the arrangement and then uh, we got access to, you know, we, they had a transfer done from the, the negative. And I knew where the negative was. And I, I realized they had just done this transfer. I was like, holy shit. So we uh-huh. got to work with that. And I turned it over to Don and, he and his colorist got on it and everything, and now they're working on the five. Well, I mean, it's just been, it's been kind of a, a whirlwind. It's taken longer than, I wouldn't say it's taken longer than I expected, or that we all expected, because we we knew this would. These things tend to drag out. Mm-hmm, I've been through this mm-hmm. enough to know that these things take a while. Right, especially um, if you want them done right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And yeah. there were a couple of little hiccups here and there, which there always are. Sure. Right. Uh, right. But. Um, you know, there was a, there was an outside chance that we were hoping that it might be ready for Halloween, but that wasn't. We I we knew that months ago wasn't going to happen, um, but it's certainly looking to be on track for end of the year, first of the year, right now, which is great because you know, and also at some point you just want to get done with it and be sure. done and bring yeah, it out, move on, right? But right. Um, I'm I'm wrapping up the extras now. I'm in the I'm in the the the, the final stretch with those, the home stretch with those. Uh-huh. And uh, the, the 5-1, we're completing that. And the picture's been color timed and approved by the cinematographer. And, um, yeah, the artwork is being complete. I mean, we're, we're going all out with this. This is not going to be just a simple bare-bones release, that's for sure. Well, it's great because it's never, I, again, in my opinion, it's it, since a VHS, it's never had a proper release. And that was just because it was VHS and everything was being released almost the same way. I've, I, I mean, most fans I would think have been looking for this film to add to their collection for a very, very long time because it was a fairly popular film when it came out. It's just one of those odd movies that gets forgotten. It, uh, yeah, it, it's weird. It, it has survived in spite of the fact that it has not had really a lot of circulation out there. Um, there are movies that just, you know, they find their audience. Because I was 13 when that movie came out, and I very much related to Eddie and his plight and his sort of outsider status and so forth. Another th- another aspect of that movie, which is the music's really good. The Fastway song, the soundtrack was more popular than the movie was. Right, right. Well, you see, know. as a musician, I've been a professional musician since I was started getting paid for gigs when I was 14. My, my thought, assumption, and I think a lot of people's assumption why that film hasn't been released had to have had something to do with the music licensing because you know, of that. Is it, there any truth to well, that? No, there's actually okay. no truth to that. And it's funny because for years, and it was on the web and on these old forums, that Anchor Bay Entertainment was going to release it. 
And because of music rights issues, we had to cancel our release. And I've said this many times, never happened. Because I was at Anchor Bay at the time that this rumor started, we never had the rights to trick. It never, we wanted it, but it was at the time in flux between a couple different places. And the music for that movie was made for that movie. It, there was never, there's never been any issues with the music whatsoever. You know, because they were hired, they, they were hired to produce that stuff for that film. Uh, so it was, no, there's never been music clearance issues. There's never been music issues. What you're going to hear on the Blu-ray is the same stuff that was in the film back in the VHS days and the theatrical days. So no, there's no, no. so, but again, I, I don't know how that rumor started because the only person who could have started that rumor would have been me. <laughs> well, so, in my I, mind, I, I just know how musicians are and they, they're all, Oh no. And that yeah, does come so, up a lot. That yeah. Does, yeah. That, that they would want to get, get paid again. If this getting put out, you know, everybody had yeah. their hand in it. So everybody's looking no, for no, their, that yeah. trick or treat was spared that fortunately. Oh, okay. Okay. That's well, that's, that's interesting. Cause I did not, I assume that myself, but I didn't have any kind of, no info or proof. It was just something like, I wonder why it isn't out. It's got to be the music. And the thing is, no one else did either. Uh, and yet somehow this rumor, which was, I mean, I, I, and I remember people even comments, oh yeah, I had it on pre-order. No, you didn't. <laughs> we never had it. I know, and I know this because I was there at the time and I managed the fucking release schedule. <laughs> right. I just like, and I, I worked in acquisitions and I worked on the way. I mean, I, there's no way this could have snuck out without me knowing about it. You know, it's just so it's just hilarious to me. But oh, I, I know it's the truth. It's like, oh, because you read it on the internet. Well, that never backfires on anybody. <laughs> right. You know? right, right. Um, so what was it? I guess when you licensed it, was it the? I guess I'm assuming the negative. You guys had access to that. Was there any challenges in finding any of the source materials, or was any of it damaged to a point where it was a huge uh, challenge? Well, no. What, what was interesting was, is I, I, for years I'd known where the negative was mm -hmm. independent of anything else. I just, I, cause I had been researching the movie for years. And uh, so I knew where the negative was. So I said, well, if nothing else, at least I know where the, the materials are for the film. And when I were, we were dealing with the company that we're, you're going to get the, the, the rights from, I wasn't aware that they knew where it was, but as it turns out they did and had already, and it literally at the, again, the timing on this was amazing. Like two or three, three weeks before I first contacted, they had just done a transfer of it from the negative. So it saved us a whole lot of time and effort to get the Russell And then we got a hold of the scan and the, the negative was in beautiful shape. Oh, good. Cause it hadn't been touched in 35 <laughs> years. Right, right. You know, I mean back, you know, they probably, they made the IP and IN or whatever the hell it was back then. And they never touched the negative after that. Uh -huh. So in terms of cleanup, we didn't, I don't, Don could speak to it. I don't think there was any done. Uh -huh. I mean, we, there was none needed. Um, the color was another story, but, uh, and then, the, you know, we've got this, you know, everything else in terms of the materials for the film, there really hasn't been a huge issue uh, at all. Has there, has there been any issues? Uh, I'm, you know, you're obviously putting together the extra features for it as well. Have you had any particular trouble with any of the extra features for the film? No, not really. Um, the, the couple of people said no that we were hoping would say yes, um, and I'm sure it won't be hard for people to figure out who the no's were. Um, and then you know one of the uh, the actresses said no, which was kind of disappointing. But you know Mark Price, it was funny the night we announced it. Mark Price called my friend Chris McGibbon from Spooky Picture Show, called him, 
and said, I'm, I'm, I'm so excited. What can I do? I mean, Mark's been all about it. So, you know, we had him and then Charles Martin Smith. We got, you know, everybody's all the people you really wanted to show up have shown up. That's great. Because one thing I wanted to talk with you a little about, and it's just a personal thing with me, is that I don't know if people realize who Charles Martin Smith, like you see directed by Charles Martin Smith. Those are three really common names stuck together. Right. <laughs> but I think if people saw a picture of Charles Martin Smith, oh, yeah, they would realize Charles Martin Smith. If yeah, they've seen the Untouchables or uh, almost any other, or what American Star Graffiti Man or yeah. Never Cry Wolf yeah. or yeah. American Graffiti, right, right, you know? right? So I mean, uh, they would know who this is. I, I is that the only film he directed? No, as a matter of fact, he went on to do several things. He did Air Bud. Really? Okay. All right. And A Dolphin's Tale, mm-hmm. and uh, he went on to do several films after that. Uh, but uh, and Trick or Treat was the first was his first film. Although interestingly enough, and I didn't learn this until I started working on this, he was not the original director on the film. Really? No, the original director was Penelope Spheris. Are you kidding me? Really? I am not kidding you. Huh? The, produ- the producers, uh, Joel Swasson and Michael Murphy, had worked on a movie called The Boys Next Door with her, mm-hmm. and they were going to do Trick or Treat, and they thought, well, she's perfect for this, but uh, it just didn't work out one way or another. The, the, the approaches didn't gel or something, didn't, you know, creative differences or something to that effect. And um, then they, they brought it, Charles Martin Smith was looking to make a movie, and it just kind of worked out, you know. Interesting. So it was, yeah, and there's some really great stories. Uh, I've Joel Swasson, the producer who I've worked with before, he came in, he did an interview for me, and then, Michael Murphy, the other producer, did an audio interview for me, which he told me a lot of great stories. And Rhett Topham, one of the screenwriters, who went on to do 976 Evil, I got an audio interview with him. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I've gotten all the really key creative folks to do something for this. So, for the extra features people, uh, there's a little bit to, to chew on. So, there's going to be some good extra features. Now, how about the, the you mentioned the, uh, the, the uh, packaging, too. Are you having original artwork uh, done up for this? You can have reversible sleeves. Anything you want? Oh to talk yeah, about? we're gonna yeah, we're gonna do a very nice slipcase for this thing, and there are gonna be three different options to choose from for the slipcase. Three different artists have done covers for them. Two of which you've probably seen before on T-shirt designs because they were so cool. We had to redo them. We just we had to use them again. Then we did another one um, that's gonna be so there'll be three different ones to choose from, and then the the, the Blu-ray inside. The front cover will have the theatrical art from the U.S., and then the reverse will have the U.K. art that was used. So one way or the other, you're getting the art you love (laughs) for this. Yeah, And then there's going to be a a nice book inside with liner notes uh, as well. One of the people is Mike Gingold. Oh, sure. uh, Did some liner notes for us. Mm -hmm. And there's tons of photos. I mean, I was so lucky. I was on a trip earlier this year kind of all around the south and the east coast, and um, I had stopped off in Wilmington where I had done some work on maximum overdrive a few years ago for the Blu-ray of that. And I went down to Wilmington where they shot trick or treat and interviewed a few of the cast or the crew that were down there still. And one of the guys I was talking to mentioned a good friend of his who was a still photographer. And he mentioned his name. I said, wait, that's the still photographer from trick or treat. Well, one thing led to another. I ended up talking to the guy and he lived up in near Albany, New York. And, uh, I was going to be traveling through there. He let me come over and go through his archives and scan in like a hundred photos, a lot of which have never been seen before. Uh, so we've got that going on. And I mean, it's going to be, 
So this will be a comprehensive it. release that the, the, the yeah, release people hope, are waiting for, have been waiting I for. I certainly hope so. I mean, sure. I, I certainly, you know, we're I'm covering it as best I can with everything that's available to do. Right. And, well, uh, this this is something, too, that I like to cover on the podcast and something that, like, a, I don't really, not a whole peek behind the curtain at what's going on as opposed to get to know the people putting these things together and to understand that we are all sort of in the same community of fandom as oh, well. Yeah. And that we yeah. understand we would like to have some of this stuff too, but it's, some of it's just impossible to provide on a disc these days. You know, and, and you yeah. hear some complaining. Oh, yeah. It's like, well, why isn't this here? Why isn't this? Clearly, and I can guarantee you that yeah. anyone who says, why isn't this here or why isn't this person here? I went through the same thing myself. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I wish like it, it's I don't have any problems with people expressing disappointment. Oh, I wish like Sam Raimi could have been part of this or something like that, because I feel the same way. Sure. But it's when people say, I can't believe they didn't get such and such for this. Mm-hmm. Like it never occurred. Like I'll never forget when I did the stepfather for uh, um, Shop Factory. I, of course, reached out very early on to Terry O'Quinn to see if you would do an interview. So I was also working on Stepfather 2 around the same time for Synapse, oddly enough. And he said no. It was like an immediate no. He doesn't like to look back. He just digs forward. He doesn't want to talk about his past and that much. I was like, oh, something. That was what I was told. I was like, okay. Well, a review comes out of the stuff I did for Stepfather, and it was largely positive. But at the end, he went, but after all this and everything, I cannot believe they didn't reach out for an interview for Terry O'Quinn for the Stepfather. And I'm like, my God, you're right. It never occurred to me. I were doing the stepfather and I forgot to ask about the stepfather. Oh, son of a bitch. I'm an idiot. You know, that was, the, that, those are the things that bother me. And it's, it, there is a, a perception sometimes that when you get a project, the entire cast and crew are just lined up outside your door, ready to do an interview. That's it, there. It's not that way. There's a lot of detective work, a lot of begging and pleading and cajoling and fingers crossed to hope to get these people to do something. And sometimes it flows very easily. I've had projects where more people showed up than I could have possibly imagined. And then other times it's like pulling teeth, but it's never because I didn't try to get folks. Sure. Sure. Well, and you know, and I think we're all also a part of that. Like you said, in enthusiasm and stuff, I think sometimes fandom can get a little cranky and take it a little far. It, uh, it can know. get cranky and there's an entitlement that I tend to not like very much sometimes where it's like, well, you, if I'm buying this, I'm owed whatever I want on this. It's like, I'm, I'm not going to buy unless you give me everything I want. It's like, well, no, that's not the way it works. Um, we're going to do everything we can with the time and the money and the, the, the availability that's allotted to us. And sometimes we'll go above and beyond. I always, you know, there've been several projects I've done where I've gone out of pocket. I, I didn't see any money at the end of it because I really wanted to make sure it was done right. Um, and it is frustrating sometimes when people, again, just think that, oh, well, I mean, how come you didn't get this guy? I'm sure he was available. No. Mm-hmm. Right, <laughs> like, right. no. Right. But, but I understand they're not in the business. They don't, under, they don't know what it's like to go through this sort of stuff. And, and, those, and those, cases are, those cases are kind of rare. And also, at the same time, I don't shut myself off from fair criticism either. You know, sometimes fans and, and, and reviewers can bring up points that you hadn't considered and go, you know, I wish that this had been here for this reason or, you know, and there, there have been a couple of times where they went, well, I never thought to, that that person was that important to this. Um, maybe I would have tried a little harder, you know, for that or something like that. That has come up. And sometimes 
it wasn't personal. They just said the creative approach didn't work for me on this. I'm like, okay, you know, that's, that's perfectly legitimate. Right. And so you don't want to shut yourself off completely from that, but there, there comes a point where you very easily realize, okay, this is just sniping for the sake of it. And that's not going to offer me anything interesting or helpful in any way. Right. Right. You know, uh, well, besides trick or treat, which obviously is, is a huge thing going on in your world right now. Are there other, any other current projects or stuff in the future that you want to mention? Well, I'm doing a lot of work for Kino these days. So okay. I'm, I'm, I'm managing a lot of their titles and a lot of the stuff that's coming out. And so Monster Squad 4K is coming up, which is a re-release. I mean, I worked on that for Lionsgate back in the day. It was a big, big project for me. And so we're doing that one. And then we're doing, uh, I did a featurette on Staying Alive. The, the the sequel to Saturday Night Fever with the Stallone directed and um, I just did something for with Tom Savini for Severn's Nightmare release uh, that came out Needful Things I did an interview with the screenwriter for that the Vestron series over at uh, Lionsgate continues uh, we just had My Best Friend is a Vampire and Blue Steel is coming up and there'll be more coming up after that so there's a whole there's a whole bunch of them there's just a uh, a lot of irons in the fire. Nice. You know? Where where can people follow what what you're doing and just to stay updated on what you're doing? Uh, my personal webpage, uh, Michael Felsher over at Facebook. Um, I don't really. I have one for pictures, but I never really update it that much. I'm I'm bad with that. I've always been bad. And I have my my regular website, redshirtpictures.com. That stays fairly uh, updated. Um, but I so always redshirtpictures.com or maybe find yeah. you on Facebook and follow you. Yeah, because there's a there's a Facebook link there too. Okay. There's a Twitter link too, but I don't go on Twitter or either. X or X or whatever the fuck <laughs> yeah, it's called right now. Right, right. You know, yeah, Facebook is confusing enough for me at my tender age. I'm like, I'm yeah. sitting there like they, trying yeah. to figure out what's sounds, going on. Sounds about right. <laughs> yeah. That sounds about right. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, thanks for taking the time to to talk with me. I I, it, I found this very fascinating because I do. I mean, I've seen your work forever. And, uh, and like I, I've talked to you a little bit uh, before we started, and I've, I've, I've spoken a couple times in passing with you and stuff. You've always been a friendly guy. I've always never had anything bad to say, but it's always fascinating to find out when people have either a very similar or very different background or story to tell, uh, you know, and I think it was, it was interesting to hear that. And I learned a lot, and now I know a little bit more about what you do and what you're doing. So Excellent. I always appreciate people having an interest in it. And I never, I never assume that anything I say is that interesting. So I'm just, it's always nice to know that people are, uh, are fans and want to learn more about the process and what we go through to do these things. Cause it's, trust me, I don't do this because it pays big bucks. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, this is, it's a small percentage of the, of the population that's interested in these sort of things. So it, it pays a, accordingly, but I do it because it's my passion and my love and the things, and it's been my privilege to document the creative process that went into all these movies. Well, congratulations on Trick or Treat and all the success and good luck with it, uh, with the the Synapse release with uh, in conjunction with you on, on that. And uh, hopefully I will get to uh, talk to you in person sometime when I'm up there visiting Don and Jerry up in Michigan. I would love it, man. Thank you. Yeah, that would be awesome. All right, Michael. Well, thank you very much, and we'll talk to you soon. All right, man.
Once again, thank you, Michael, for taking your time to talk to me here on the Synapse Films Podcast. And I'd like to thank everyone also for listening and your continued support of Synapse Films. Many, many thank yous, and we wish you a very, very happy Halloween. It was an honor and a pleasure to be your tour guide on this journey into all things Synapse Films. Until we meet again, be safe, be good to each other, and be right back here next time for the next episode of the Synapse Films Podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Synapse Films Podcast. We couldn't be here without you, the fans. So from the bottom of our hearts, we thank you for your continuing support of Synapse Films. I'm tired of being sick, always want something to never get. Last illusion of the dream.